Hello and welcome to News Hour from the BBC World Service coming to you live from London. This is Owen Bennett Jones and on today's programme, the latest on the attack in Nice, we'll be hearing from a man who was just metres away from the truck and we'll be trying to understand why France keeps being targeted by violent jihadists and what be what might be the best response from Paris and also a visit to a children's classroom abandoned by the so-called Islamic State. Here, friends forever, Ahmed, Umar, it seems to me these are the names of the children of some of those ISIS militants written in English. And these people, maybe they have come from some English-speaking countries. And here I can see written in Arabic, Real Madrid. And that's from a town in northern Syria, just by the Turkish border, which uh, IS, so-called IS, has just been forced out of. Toulouse, Nantes, and that was a vehicle attack as well, Charlie Hebdo, the Bataclan, and now the Bastille Day attack in Nice. There was confusion, chaos and carnage on the Promenade des Anglais. Nice's beachfront boulevard was packed. Thousands of people, young and old, locals and tourists, had just watched the traditional Bastille Day fireworks over the Mediterranean. It finished around about 20 past 10 local time and as I turned to walk away back to my apartment I heard what I thought was at first a bit of an explosion but maybe that was my imagination but almost instantaneously uh, people started to scream and to run in all directions and the police who were not on the promenade who were redirecting the traffic uh, in the city centre then started running in the opposite direction towards me and made a very firm point that we had to leave as quickly as possible. I just looked in front of me and I saw a, a big truck just stopped like one and a half meters just in front of me and um, he was smashing all all the people on his way under the truck. Sudden, this huge panic erupted from the streets and everybody was running and I got separated from my aunt and uncle and I was looking around for them and we just had no idea what was going on. It was complete chaos and people were screaming, kids were crying. You could hear, you know, words being mumbled, you know, Susie, Susie, like suicide. And At Glenvale Hospital, where they're taking children, uh, which is on the promenade, just in front, there are two bodies with screens covering them. And from there, down towards the east, everything is barred off for people to access. All you can see are, are covered bodies. Boats are patrolling the coastline and they've just told everybody to get off the beaches, out of the water. When you walk towards the hospital, you can see people crying and everybody is on their mobile phones and all they're saying in French is, on toujours pas encore, we don't still have any information, or they're talking about what happened to their friends. And it's just this community of sadness on a day and a weekend that's supposed to be our national celebration. So let's try and get some more information now from the BBC's Andrew Plant, who's in Nice. Uh, What can you tell us about the attacker? What's known about him? We had a brief flurry about an hour ago of uh, police cars whizzing past. There was clearly something going on, but uh, no information coming from the police. But we have learned probably in the last 45 minutes a bit more. We knew earlier today the police had recovered something or some items from the cab of the lorry that was driven through the crowds here during the firework display uh, yesterday evening. We think it was a wallet, bank cards. And we know that led the police to a house somewhere here in Nice. Uh, they've raided that house. We know that, but we don't know what they found. They haven't said. 
but a man has been named now, particularly uh, in local media. They've called him Mohamed Boulil, a 31-year-old man uh, of dual nationality. So he's both uh, a French and a Tunisian citizen. So that's pretty much the extent uh, we know about him. Uh, French media saying it was he who was driving that truck that came through the barriers here, despite the road being closed last night for the uh, Bastille Day fireworks display here. Uh, on the promenade, the front, running past the beach here in Nice. And what are people saying about how he could have got so many weapons? As you say, the you know, cab apparently full of weapons. How, how, what are people saying about that? That's what we're hearing. I can tell you, actually, we're standing right now amongst probably 50 television crews. I've heard uh, people from China, I've heard people from South America. Literally, the world's media is here. It's being broadcast everywhere, as you can imagine. Right now, in fact, I can see cameras pointed uh, all across this, this street that we're standing on in Nice. A lot of the conversations I'm hearing are about the uh, method of this attack. Obviously, France has been victim, and its people have been victims of terrorist attacks before, most notably uh, last year in March and then again in November at the Bataclan. Uh, both horrendous attacks with huge losses of life. This one, people are saying, was far less uh, sophisticated, seemed uh, far more homemade, but obviously has been no less brutal. Uh, by the time that truck stopped, of course, it had killed at least 84 people. We know, though, that there are a lot of uh, people still injured in hospital. Some of them, we're told, critically injured, so we do expect that figure of 84 to go up. OK, thanks very much. That was uh, Andrew Plant, and uh, she will be hearing from a hospital a little later in the programme. Now then, the French President Francois Hollande has said he was extending a state of emergency declared in November 2015 after attacks in Paris killed 130 people. He also said that France would continue its presence in Iraq and Syria in a bid to combat international terrorism. And the French Prime Minister, Manuel Valls, has been speaking as well. He's announced three days of national mourning, saying France would not allow itself to be destabilised by violence. We are facing a war that terrorism has started against us. The objective of the terrorists is to instil fear and panic. France is a big country, is a big democracy that will not allow itself to be destabilised. That was the Prime Minister of France. Uh, Robert Holloway is an AFP journalist, Agent France Press, who just happened to be there in Nice at the time. So, I asked him what happened. I was with my wife. We'd just been to watch the firework display uh, on the Promenade des Anglais in Nice, and we were walking back to my daughter's apartment uh, I said to my wife, it's um, it, it just a few spots of rain. So I said, why don't we walk quickly to get ahead of the crowd? And we walked for about 15 minutes. Uh, so it was by then about 20 to 11. And suddenly, apparently out of nowhere, we saw this huge white truck coming towards us. It was swaying slightly from side to side and appeared to be hitting the side of the... It was, it was on the walkway, the, on the promenade. And uh, it was going very fast, and at that point it was clear to us immediately that this was an attack, that this man was out to, to do damage and kill people. The promenade is, uh, is a very long, elegant street. Um, it runs for several miles along the, along the coast, along the beach. And so we had the sea to our left. We could see this thing coming towards us. And to our right was the, the avenue, which uh, consists of two 
um, roadways divided by a, uh, an avenue of trees. And we just screamed at each other to get out of the way. We had about three seconds and we dived to our right. We had to be careful that there was also traffic in the roadway coming towards us. And the, the truck went by in a shower of um, flying debris, broken glass and plastic. And uh, it, was, it was clear to us at that point that this was, um, that this was an attack. So, um, so actually, how close was this truck to you? About 12 feet as it went by. We had about three seconds. If we had not been walking on the street side of the promenade, if we'd been walking on the, on the seaside of the promenade, we would not have been able to get out of the way. And if, the, if we had not been able to get ahead of the, the main body of the crowd, so we had a bit of distance, a bit of sight in, you know, that was clear in front of us and room to move. As we came up from the beach a quarter of an hour earlier, and, and this is an image which has sort of haunted me ever since, we were trying to get through the crowd, which was a, a very thick crowd. There must have been, I would think, at least 10,000 people, if, if not more, many more, who were on the beach or on the promenade to watch the fireworks. And as we were trying to get ahead of them, uh, there was a family of uh, three parents, three adults, and uh, a couple of children, one in a pushchair. And I remember the mother saying to the the, 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 one of the children was larking about and she said to him, get out of the way, you, you, you're, in, you're in my way and I can't move the pushchair. And we then got round them and walked briskly ahead. And those people, if they were still on the promenade 15 minutes later, they would not have had the remotest chance of getting out of the way. But you, do, you, is, you don't know what happened to that family? I don't, no, no, because, no. Um, I mean, when the truck went by... We dived into the roadway. There was a fair amount of traffic still around. It was because it was the 14th of July. Part of the promenade had been closed to traffic. There'd been a, a military display in the late afternoon, early evening. I'd watched people driving around in vintage jeeps, they were flying American flags and French flags. And that part of the promenade, going eastwards towards the port, was still closed to traffic. But beyond the Negresco Hotel, which is the, the legendary luxury hotel where Josephine Baker used to sing, Beyond there, going westwards towards the airport, the promenade and the avenue were open to traffic. And uh, it, was that, it was that which enabled this man to, um, to drive the, the truck up onto the promenade itself. What sort of a truck was it, actually? It was very big. It was white. I would guess it was 40 tonne. It was a very, very large vehicle. You've described it all with a journalist's eye. You, you know, you've, you've, you've <laughs> had a life, a life in journalism, and obviously you reacted like a journalist, and you realised it was an attack immediately you know which not everyone did in that sort of capacity can i ask you when you reflect on what's happening in france and there have been so many attacks there you know do you, do you see any way of getting past this of the french managing to sort sort out a, a more safe arrangement for their people we have been living with a state of emergency since the november attacks uh, so we see police walking around we see armed soldiers walking around the railway stations and the airports and so on I, I, I don't know to what extent our armed soldiers could actually prevent... Armed soldiers can't, can't open fire when there's a crowd. So um, I, I don't know. I'm not giving a very coherent answer. I, I don't... Uh, I'm, I'm still a bit shaken by what happened last night. <laughs> and that was uh, AFP journalist Robert Holloway, who had a narrow escape from that truck attack in Nice last night. Now then, just uh, as we came on air... President Hollande of France, who is in Nice, uh, has been making a statement. I think he's still doing it now, actually. And we've just got part of what he has been saying. Here it is. Who are working uh, to formalise our response to this despicable attack. 
where one person used a truck for murderous ends. Why Nice? Because Nice is known all over the world, one of the most beautiful cities in the world, of the planet. Why 14th of July? Because it is a celebration of liberty. And to harm France, it is, this is why this individual committed this terrorist attack. And that was uh, President Francois Hollande. He's still speaking. He's in Nice making his uh, address to the French people after the attack there. You're listening to the World Service of the BBC. Coming up, since uh, the UK voted to leave the European Union, there have been various reactions in the United States, including this one. They don't want no immigrants. Does that sound familiar? They don't want multiculturalism. Does that sound familiar? This is time to freak out. Run screaming around in your underwear up and down the street and tell people it happened over there and it's coming over here. Headlines now. More details are emerging of the man who killed at least 84 people by driving a truck through a crowd in the city of Nice. He has been named as Mohamed Louhouesh Boulil. He is a French Tunisian who lived in Nice. And there are now three days of national mourning that have been called in France for people killed in the attack. And sticking with the attack in Nice, uh, the French Member of Parliament, Member of the National Assembly, Christophe Prema, was in Nice with his family last night and he told me when he realised there had been an attack. I saw just people just running away, that, but you know, you never know if you just uh, if people are panic stricken because of a struggle in the street or things like that. But then when I looked and uh, when I talked to people, I realized that something wrong was going on. So we were just inside the building, and then we had to leave the building and, and leave the uh, central area of Nice. And then there was a big crowd trying to get in, in different directions. So that was a yes, that was a nightmare actually. So people's reaction was basically to try and just leave the area as quickly as they could. Yes, but at the same time, people try to to have some information. So you have that this kind of surrealistic uh, scene where you have people trying to phone friends or, or people trying to know what happened, and then we try to share the information that we had. We we helped each other, and then we realized that we had to move from the central area, from the uh, Promenade des Anglais, and the, the the one of the streets in the middle of Nice, uh, Rue Massena, so that it was time to to leave the centre. I did see a message on social media last night with the French authorities saying, "Please stop using your phones," because it always happens in these situations. Everyone rings each other up to say, "Are you okay?" Yes, I think that's that's uh, that's important because and that's that's, that's why I, I didn't uh, when I, I saw what happened. I just took my, my kids from there. I knew that we had to leave the room for the security forces and for the uh, uh, the medical staff so that they could uh, come as quick as possible. So that's that's for sure. So we we had some uh, policemen on the streets that helped us, uh, guided us to in order to uh, uh, to leave the scene. We may assume that when something like this happens, the reaction is obviously fear but also anger. Would that be the correct assessment of the mood of the people there? 
That's a very sad morning. You know, you had a lot of tourists or so yesterday. That was the national day and the things like that. And I think this kind of act is very hard to uh, to avoid, unfortunately, because when when you just have one individual driving, I think people didn't understand what happened when they, they saw the, the, the truck driving in a crowd because that, that was overcrowded. And that's a big problem now with collective events. How can I? How can we try to act in a better way, in a more efficient way, uh, before that kind of, of individuals act. But that, that's uh, the, the toughest, I think, the hardest challenge that we will have to face in the upcoming month. You are a member of the National Assembly in France, so you will have a broader perspective on this and, and, and worry about the, the policy implications, the political aspects of this. Do you understand why France is, is getting more of these attacks than other European countries? France has this kind of attack because of the situation in Syria. That's obvious. The Islamic State took France as a target. Then uh, I think there is this attempt of dividing the national community in France, uh, as we have the biggest uh, Muslim community. I think the Islamic State wants to uh, create a chaos in France and uh, want to divide people and to oppose people to each other. So that, that's the biggest threat right now. So we don't want to have those extreme uh, forces in the countries uh, fighting each other. So that's that's their goal. But I think we need to stand up together and. Uh, we need to show this feeling of, of national unity in this situation. Well, it's an interesting answer because you, you just cited two external factors, Syria and Islamic State. Do you not think any internal factors are at play here within France? The intelligence services are concerned about a possible, uh, the possible fights between the extreme right forces and the Muslim community. So I think we have to make sure that after those kind of terror attacks, uh, people uh, won't try to, to use those events in order uh, to create more chaos. So I think that's uh, the national unity is very important. And that's, that's why President Hollande talked in that way during the last night. He represents the, this national unity, so we need to try to together to stand up together in order to uh, to avoid because that's exactly what the terrorist wants us to do to fight against each other and and uh, and so on so i think that's the maybe uh, another consequence that we have to avoid in the future but I, i'm i'm confident about that the french member of the national assembly there christophe prima who was there as that attack took place it's three weeks since the world woke up to the news that the uk had voted to leave the european union and in that time, Britain has experienced a political and economic turmoil. There's a new prime minister whose main objective is to steady the ship, as they say, and negotiate exit from the EU. But many countries are still trying to work out what's going on, not least the United States, which sees the UK as the most like-minded member of the European Union and a gateway to the common market. And now it's wondering about Brexit and how it will affect trade and security cooperation and the much-vaunted special relationship. Barbara Plett-Usher has this report from Washington. The president uh, reached out to, to try to get to Prime Minister Cameron. Susan Rice, the national security adviser, recounts the tense moments in the White House as the results of the vote became clear. So what would he say to the Prime Minister? He gets him on the phone. It's the largest fact in Britain of recent, the largest fact in Cameron's career. Bummer. Bummer. <laughs> Hmm, nice to know there was a sophisticated policy response at the ready. Others were less inclined towards comic relief. And the shockwaves started emanating worldwide from this local decision in Britain to throw away the means by which Europe rescued itself from the ashes of two world wars and probably kept us from having a third. That was an emotional newscaster. This is the end of the world as we know it. 
And this was a political activist, Van Jones, who saw Brexit as the writing on the wall for a Donald Trump victory. They don't want no immigrants. Does that sound familiar? They don't want multiculturalism. Does that sound familiar? This is time to freak out. Run screaming around in your underwear up and down the street and tell people it happened over there and it's coming over here. Drawing domestic parallels was not the immediate concern in officialdom. It was more about protecting the transatlantic alliance. The message is to keep calm and carry on. Now what is it? You know how I hate being interrupted in mid-tiffin. I know, so I'm terribly sorry. Well, it's all very well. Not up the Khyber, as in this British spoof about the empire, but within Europe. The Secretary of State John Kerry made a quick trip to London and Brussels to encourage an orderly divorce. And I reminded both parties uh, how critical it is to remain steady here. The steadiness of our purpose, I think, is evident and embraced by all. And the ability to rely on capable partners right now in this world that we're living in is more critical than ever. Critical for many U.S. companies that set up shop in the U.K. in order to serve the continent and are now considering their own Brexit. And another setback for President Obama's trade agenda. President of the United States of America, the Right Honorable Justin Trudeau. A recent summit with free trade partners Mexico and Canada felt curiously out of step. It's important for us not to draw easy analogies between what happened in the UK and the EU versus what's happening between our three countries in terms of trade. Or but there are obviously new complications for a transatlantic agreement, uh, says economist Chad Bown. You know, over the last couple of years, the priority for the EU has been to negotiate this trade agreement with the United States. Now it has a second set of negotiations that it has to worry about. It has to worry about negotiating a new trade agreement with the UK and what the terms of that trade agreement are going to look like as well. And what will security cooperation look like? Another crucial question. General Philip Breedlove has just stepped down as top NATO commander for Europe. Frankly, I don't see a huge impact to NATO. Uh, The UK is an incredibly important, vibrant, active part, a full-spectrum partner in NATO, and I don't see that changing. Britain, of course, is going to stay in NATO, but we don't want to see a diminished Britain or a fractured Britain or a Britain without Scotland. Nicholas Burns is a longtime diplomat and former ambassador to NATO. What he really wants to see is the UK remaining in the EU. And so, he says, does most of Washington. We saw Britain as our key partner inside the EU. Britain translated the EU for us and translated America to the EU. And I don't know a single responsible politician in the United States, with the exception of Donald Trump, who thinks that Britain leaving the EU is in the American national interest. It's not. U.S. diplomat Nicholas Burns ending that report from Barbara Plett Usher. More from Nice now. And uh, yesterday was the national holiday in France being celebrated with fireworks. So families were out to enjoy that and inevitably children were there and amongst those killed and injured. Uh, Stephanie Simpson speaks for a children's hospital in Nice, which has been receiving patients. She told me how many had been brought in. We had 39 patients uh, that were brought in. Out of the 39, nine were adults, so they were transferred, and 30 were kids and teenagers, children and teenagers. What kind of injuries did they have? It's essentially trauma. Some have also had some uh, broken uh, bones. There's a lot of trauma. The life emergency situations were treated first last night, 
So we had the surgeons ready for uh, the different operations. Unfortunately, uh, two children passed away out of the 30. I see. And how, how old were they? I don't have the details. I think one was just 12 or something like that. And so you've now got 28 patients and I imagine a lot of worried parents in the hospital trying to reassure them. Yes, indeed. And uh, actually the parents uh, have access to a psychological cell and uh, most of them uh, went there, not only the parents, but also the the siblings and uh, extended family. It's also tough for our staff and so we also have... Uh, some psychologists to help our own staff because, of course, some of our nurses and doctors have family members uh, as well uh, that were injured and in the attack. You can't have seen anything like this before? Of this uh, extent, no. And uh, this is uh, really an extraordinary situation for Nice and for the region. This uh, pediatric hospital uh, has a very uh, big emergency room. We are the third largest in France. In terms of volume, 60,000 kids per year go through our ER. We've had in the past, you know, like a kindergarten that uh, takes fire and we have like 30 kids coming all at once, but not of that sort of injuries, you know. So how long do you think it will be before these children are back home? Some of them could be with you for weeks and weeks, I guess. Yes, it really varies. So some of them have already left. Some of them uh, are still uh, between life and uh, death, so... I mean, that's the thing about these attacks. It's completely random, isn't it? It's, it's just total luck as to whether you get a life-threatening injury or a light injury. Yes, and it's also total luck uh, if you were uh, at the fireworks or not. Last night, I was there myself with my kids, and uh, I was lucky enough to decide that it was too windy to stay, and I said, OK, let's go earlier. <laughs> let's leave earlier. So, it's uh, you know, life is... Uh, a very strange uh, thing. And uh, the hospital is right on the promenade. It's right there. Stephanie Simpson there with that account of how a children's hospital in Nice has reacted to these uh, events in the city. You're listening to News Hour. Well, the Nice attack does raise the question again: Why would someone do that? Uh, Islamic State, so-called Islamic State, has not said it ordered the attack, not this specific one, but it has, in general terms, said that France should be targeted, along with others. In September 2014, a spokesman for so-called Islamic State, Amu Mohammed Al Adnani, said, "If you can kill a disbelieving American or European." especially the spiteful and filthy French or an Australian or Canadian or any other disbeliever from the disbelievers waging war, including the citizens of the countries that entered into a coalition against the Islamic State, then rely upon Allah and kill him in any manner or way, however it may be. Uh, the US put a $5 million reward for information leading to Mr Adnani's capture. In January this year, he was injured in an airstrike. But again, why is France considered filthier, as he puts it, than other European countries. Uh, French-Algerian journalist and writer Nabila Ramdani joined me earlier. Why France? Well, it's a very difficult question, but certainly Al-Qaeda-affiliated group and so-called Islamic uh, cells as well have been threatening France for years. 
and they uh, put forward a reason for um, those uh, threats. France's hawkish uh, foreign policies and its involvement in, in its fight against uh, global terrorism in countries such as Mali, uh, Syria and Iraq. And it has to be said that François Hollande made it his foreign policy to tackle those violent extremist groups. And he has been relatively successful in countries like Mali, for example. And he's been particularly keen, before anybody else, to tackle the problem fully in countries like Syria and Iraq. So he made it clear that he wanted to eradicate uh, those groups, even if it took uh, France to do it single-handedly almost. So I guess it's that kind of pushback from those groups uh, to make France a particular target. Well, that does make make sense. But to what extent also is it to do with the internal situation in France that there are people who are alienated enough to do it? That is, in my view, the most fundamental problem. The background uh, and indeed the profiles of uh, those who have been perpetrating terrorist attacks in Paris, the Nice attack, uh, the Paris attacks last year, all those involved came from a depressingly predictable background, uh, French of a North African background, often involved in armed robbery, uh, drug dealing, a criminality essentially. Most of them were meant to be in prison or under constant surveillance. They were known to the French authorities and yet they managed to get hold of weapons and escape hapless intelligence services. These are the kind of people who have been radicalised mainly online and indeed in prison and who, in their own words, uh, had nothing to lose and went on to carry out the most evil of deeds. So it's very much a problem at home and the Prime Minister Manuel Valls has often highlighted this domestic problem. He spoke of the social, economic and territorial apartheid in France, which divides communities. But does that open up the possibility of some political solution to this, in that if that you know, higher levels of integration are achieved, that that might help resolve some of these problems? One shouldn't overlook the very important security aspect to that. There has to be a security approach to preventing those attacks. And in fact, a parliamentary report investigating last year's Paris attacks has just been released, highlighting global failings and insisting on the creation of a new agency, a US-style agency, in order to counter terrorism. So there's admittedly very uh, real security failings by the French authorities. Having said that, there's also, as you uh, said, a political solution to these problems. And I believe that more integration, more opportunities, more inclusion of those communities would go a long way into preventing alienation and the feeling of stigmatisation as well. And that was Nabila Ramdani. Well, if more of these attacks are coming, how can France prepare for them? Uh, the hope is always that the intelligence services will get ahead of it. Uh, is that happening in France? Camille Grand is the director of the FRS, a security think tank in Paris, and he's formerly a senior official in the Ministry of Foreign and European Affairs. Now, there's just been a big parliamentary inquiry in France into the two big attacks last year. So I asked him, what were its main findings? Their recommendations focused uh, primarily on the organization of our uh, security forces and our intelligence. 
they made the case for more uh, local intelligence because the there was an, a local intelligence service called the Les Renseignements Généraux, which was uh, dismantled and merged with the broader domestic intelligence, and they, they felt that this could be improved. They also argued in favor of uh, providing more um, financial capabilities to the um, anti-terrorist uh, judges because our, our legal system is a bit overwhelmed by the, the size of the problem. The uh, issue of the role of the armed forces was also discussed in this parliamentary report to make the best use of the uh, 10,000 military which are patrolling on, on the, the streets of France. So to provide them with both the legal means and the ability to be more uh, more efficient in this particular role. Can I just pick up on one of those ideas, the, the idea of more local intelligence? I mean, my impression is that they they did that in the United States and it, it hasn't actually produced that many benefits. And is there, is there a fear that, you know, it sounds good, but it doesn't actually make much difference? In the old days, we had this uh, domestic intelligence service, which was very focused on, on gathering weak signs of uh, radicalization, of uh, uh, misbehavior, and that could have played a role maybe in, pre- in identifying very early uh, individuals who were ready to become violent. I'm afraid that if you look at the Nice attack, many of these changes wouldn't have made much of a difference. The focus on uh, the, the Nice attack unfortunately demonstrates that it's extraordinarily difficult uh, to prevent such attacks because the perpetrator was not on uh, any list of uh, radicalized uh, individuals, uh, had not been in Syria, uh, was obviously not trained uh, by uh, ISIS. So we have an individual that was probably impossible to identify uh, before the attack. If you did everything in the French parliamentary report, you said we'll, we'll implement all of it, how much safer would France be? It can help do a little better in terms of uh, prevention of uh, uh, a terrorist act, but I'm afraid it's not going to make a huge difference. Uh, the French legal system and the amount of effort put into all of this is already uh, tremendous. Of course, there is always a need to adapt and do better and and, and improve procedures and and intelligence gathering and all of this. But I'm I'm not sure this is going to make a huge difference for the sort of attacks we faced in Nice uh, last night. Yeah, because one of your ministers is saying you're going to have to live with it. You know, you just have to get used to it. I'm afraid it's the case. The Prime Minister and the members of government have been saying this. There has been many failed attacks in the recent months. Uh, so the risk of facing another attack is serious. Uh, what the intelligence community, the security forces can do is their best to prevent as many of them as possible. But with a, an attack of the type of what happened in Nice, those are extraordinarily difficult to identify prior to the attack and therefore extraordinarily difficult to make them not happen, which doesn't mean that we can't do better uh, always and and adapt, but the the threat is there and will continue to be there, I'm afraid. And that's uh, Camille Grand, Director of the Foundation for Strategic Research, speaking to us from Montpellier in the south of France. Heavy fighting has been taking place in and around the city of Manbij in northern Syria. Syrian Democratic Forces, led by Kurdish fighters, have been trying to take control of the area from so-called Islamic State. For two and a half years, the Islamic State group has controlled the region near the Turkish border, but now these Kurdish forces have captured dozens of villages. 
And the BBC's Jihar Gol visited one of the newly captured compounds around Manbij and was shown around by one of the Kurdish fighters. I am walking through a town which only a few weeks ago was the local headquarters for the so-called Islamic State. Today, it is under the control of the Syrian Democratic Forces. My guide is Maslum Dilan, a Kurd who fought to liberate the area from IS. He said, actually, this neighborhood used to be housed government officials, but after IS militants took over the city, they moved in with their families. And we are going to one of the schools run by an Islamic State in this neighborhood. As we entered the deserted school, there is evidence that many of the IS fighters were foreign jihadists. There is graffiti on the walls left by some of the children. Here, friends forever. Ahmed, Omar, seems to me these are the names of the children of some of those ISIS militants written in English. And these people, maybe they have come from some English-speaking countries. And here I can see written in Arabic, Real Madrid, Spanish football club. Uh, the kitchen. Oh, wait a second. This Matbach kitchen is written in Russian. It seems we have seen a lot of Russian sign. It seems many people living in this compound were from former Soviet Union countries. I'm hearing from them. They say most of them are Chechens. Down the hall, we find what appears at first to be a classroom for art. On the floor of the room are full-sized paper cutouts of human forms laced with copper wire and connected to a battery. The children seem to have been making decoy human figures, helping in the militants' defense of the city. When the copper wire warms up, drones overhead would mistake them for IS militants. In another room, there is a pile of posters and leaflets, the militants' educational tools for their children. This is some kind of military lesson. You can see here helicopters, fighter jets, of course, the city controlled by Islamic State, and talking about how to find refuge in case of bombardment and attack. Uh-huh. It's amazing, it's interesting how they teach their kids here. This is an Islamic State curriculum. For example, here they teach them, if you commit a crime, according to Islamic State, this is your punishment. Here, lavat, meaning if you are homosexual, if you have a sex with another man, they will push you from top of a building. If you steal something, they will cut your hand. If you drink alcohol, you will be punished. And if you fight against them, it's called muharaba. They cut your neck, hang your body in the public. And that report from uh, Jihar Gola, who's been up in a newly liberated village near the Turkish border. Latest headlines from the BBC newsroom. More details are emerging of the man who killed at least 84 people by driving a truck through a crowd in the city of Nice. 
He's been named as Mohamed Boulil, a French Tunisian who lived there. Three days of national mourning have been called in France for the people killed in the attack, and President Hollande uh, is visiting the city of Nice at the moment. You're listening to the World Service of the BBC. You're listening to NewsHour. As many of you will know if you listen to the programme regularly, we cover global health issues here on NewsHour. Uh, today, our global health correspondent, Tulip Mazumda, is in Nairobi. We've been taking a closer look at female genital mutilation across the world. At least 200 million girls and women have undergone the cut, as it's often called. But it's a practice now being described by the head of the UN Population Fund as child abuse. Kenya is one of the countries trying to end the practice. One in five women aged 14 to 49 have been cut here. In the UK, meanwhile, border police are gearing up for the summer holidays because that's when some parents will take their children abroad to countries, including Kenya, to be mutilated in their home countries. In Britain, around 137,000 women are living with the consequences of the practice. I've been investigating both in the UK and here in Kenya. Uh, Some listeners may find some of the details of my reports upsetting. Boarding primary school, ready and steady to recite a poem entitled Determined and Brave. We are survivors, they recite. Most of these girls ran away from home because they were about to be mutilated or forced to marry. In some tribes, the tradition where parts of a girl's genitals are removed marks the point a child becomes a woman. It happened to this teenager, we'll call her Jane, when she was just seven years old. She was later told she was now a woman and that she had to marry a man in his 60s. They do that act in a small corner. So they call all the girls. So you sit if you are not a coward girl. If you're not a coward? Yeah. Really? If you are not a coward girl, you just sit there everyone to see you, and after that act, you will be given a prize. A prize? What, what was the prize? What did you get? The prize they give a bull. A bull? Yeah. yeah. How did you feel afterwards? And it was so, so difficult. You feel like you want to faint, mm-hmm. you want to cry, you want to do, even running out that that home. All of these girls risked their lives by running away, but here they have a future. They're getting an education and they're no longer at risk of being mutilated. And crucially, these girls won't go on to harm their own daughters. Agnes Pereo, who runs the Tassiru Rescue Centre and the school, is trying to stamp out the brutal custom in her ancient Maasai community. She introduced me to women in a nearby village including a former cutter. She tells me the community used to gather together, they'd bring beer and food and we'd all celebrate, then we would cut the girl. It emerged the cutting used to happen right where we stood. It's difficult to imagine how terrifying this experience would be for a little girl. Gosh, and she's screaming, I guess. Yes, the girl is screaming. 
Kenya banned female genital mutilation in 2011. The UN's Agency for Children says young girls are far less likely to be cut today. But old customs die hard. This is a tradition that's very important to us, the Maasai people. Otherwise, the girls would want sex all the time. We are not allowed to do it anymore. Otherwise, I would cut my seven-year-old daughter until she bleeds a lot. These attitudes are not just found in remote, traditional parts of sub-Saharan Africa. Girls who live in some communities in the UK are also being cut. That's why Operation Limelight is underway at London's Heathrow Airport. Have you ever heard about FGM? Female genital mutilation? It's just raising awareness with people... Border police are patrolling departure lounges, trying to raise awareness about the practice and telling people that female genital mutilation is illegal, including if you take a child out of the country to be cut. Back at the school, in the dorms, Jane is feeling hopeful about her future. I have some big plans. You said you wanted to be a, a lawyer? Yeah. Why do you want to do that job? So that one day, one time, I'll stand for these girls and I'll fight for the right of their girl child. That teenager we heard from there was incredibly hopeful, despite everything she went through. Her dream, as you heard there, was to get herself educated and then return to her village to help other girls just like her. And from Kenya, that was Tulip Mazumda reporting. Right, just before we close today, let's go back to the truck attack in Nice. And I'm joined in the studio by the BBC's Paul Adams, who has been monitoring what's been going on. I think the main question now, just at the moment, is any more news on the attacker? What have you got? Yeah, uh, and as Francois Hollande said just in the last hour, you know, this is an attack done to satisfy the cruelty of an individual and maybe a group. So it's the individual that people are looking at. Mohamed Lahouej, I don't know if that pronunciation is accurate, Boulel. Now, he is he is a French citizen of Tunisian origin. His parents are divorced and live in France. This is information we've got from our colleagues at the Arabic service, BBC Arabic service. Um, a family, a conservative religious family from the town of Masakin, not far from Sousse in, uh, in Tunisia. And it's thought that Mohammed frequently visited Tunisia. There's some uncertainty about when that last visit might have been, possibly as recent as eight months ago. But I think in many ways he's beginning to fit the profile of what terror analysts would regard as the worst case scenario, which is homegrown, lone wolf, possibly inspired online, uh, not immediately obviously part of a network. There was no evidence in the attack last night of, of coordination. There were no simultaneous attacks. It seems to have been him and a rented truck. And that is just about the worst possible uh, scenario in terms of the intelligence services. And another aspect of what's happening in France, uh, political division. Yes. And Clearly, you know, that may be part of, part of the objective here, um, to, to sow discord politically, to sow discord socially. Um, and certainly uh, the critics of the government are, are beginning to round on the government today. I heard earlier on uh, a, a minister in the, in the former 
uh, Sarkozy administration really quite scathing about the state of emergency uh, imposed by this government and extended today by Francois Hollande. He called it a joke, said that having troops on the street is not really very effective and that the country was somehow pretending to carry on as normal. Of course, part of the message from the government has been you should, as French citizens, you should do that. But I think a number of people are saying this is a new uh, situation now. It requires new kinds of vigilance, new kinds of legislation, perhaps, uh, and an entirely different way of behaving. Thank you very much indeed. That was uh, Paul Adams, and he brings us to an end of this edition of NewsHour. So thanks very much for listening. And from Owen Bennett-Jones here in London, goodbye. NewsHour has been a download from the BBC. To discover more and our terms of use, visit bbc.com slash podcasts.